This is Word of Mouth. I'm Erica Janik. Before we start the show, we need your help. I'm passing it on to Ben. Hey there, this is Ben Henry, a producer here at Word of Mouth. I just wanted to let you know we are starting to work on a new series about New Hampshire's North Country. And to make it happen, we need your help. Word of Mouth is driven by the curiosity of people who listen to the show. If you have any kind of question about life in northern New Hampshire, send it to us. Whether you lived there your whole life or you've never been north of the White Mountains, let us know what's on your mind. Our email is wordofmouth at nhpr.org. Okay, here's the show. Our first story today comes from the North Country. In the early 1940s, an inventor from Berlin created a container made of refined polyethylene, an odorless, non-toxic plastic that would revolutionize food storage. Hannah McCarthy has the story. In the early 1940s, an inventor from Berlin, New Hampshire, created a container made of refined polyethylene. Freshness. It's an odorless, non-toxic plastic. He called the material poly-T. A few years later, he designed an airtight lid. Lock in freshness. Five years later, House Beautiful magazine described the lidded container as, quote, fine art for 39 cents. By the mid-50s, a collection of these plastic items would be acquired and displayed by the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. I mean, I think he's an amazing character. His diaries are so fascinating. You know, he was a, a man with an absolute mission to transform the world. There is no doubt about it. This visionary was named Earl Tupper. He wasn't Anne Earl, by the way. That's a first name. And if you haven't already guessed what he called his revolutionary plastic containers. If you want to lock in freshness. Tupperware really locks it in. Now, full disclosure, Tupperware itself was not invented in New Hampshire, but Earl Tupper was. And the design and intention of Tupperware reflects a very New England ideology. It was a, a really Protestant idea that was very much tied to where he came from. This is Alison Clark. She's the head of the design history and theory department at the University of Applied Arts in Vienna. She also happens to have written a very thorough book on Earl Tupper and his invention. By going to the Smithsonian and spending, I think I ended up spending two years in the long run researching this in America. Clark documents Tupper's many inventions, knitting needles, dish drying racks, nail decals, a necktie rack, all designed to improve domestic life. He writes in his diaries that he sought to be a, quote, better social friend, to design for a moral economy, as Clark puts it. Everything could be solved by a contraption or a gadget, and that included social problems. But these inventions, even those that were borderline ingenious, were poorly marketed. Tupper had to make money elsewhere, first with his tree surgery business in New Hampshire, and then at a plastics company in Lemonster, Massachusetts. After just a year in DuPont's plastics division, Tupper split off to found the Earl S. Tupper Company, he took some polyethylene with him, refined it, cleaned it, and injection molded it into thin, bendable, durable plastic that kept air and moisture out. It's something ubiquitous today, but at the time it was unprecedented. Still, Tupper was an engineer, not a marketer. 
He put Tupperware in stores and recommended it to farmers and hairdressers for supply storage. He gave it away as a free gift. The stuff gathered dust on shelves. And then he met Brownie Wise. And she totally transformed the company because she fought and fought to keep it in the party plan system because she understood it, the value of the product, not on the shelf, but in the home and in women's social groups. Wise was a divorcee and single mother who had been ordering Tupperware in bulk and selling it, along with a sales team, at events that she called Tupperware parties. With the Tupperware party, Brownie Wise and her team were outselling department stores. And Tupper, though he wanted no real part in the world of modern women and their parties, hired Wise as a sales manager for the new Tupperware Home Parties division. By 1954, Brownie Wise was the first woman to grace the cover of Business Week. She built up women's loyalty. She built up the idea that it was a family, these women who really had no support anywhere. And she created a home for them, literally, with this kind of mecca of the Tupperware headquarters, which El Tupper had really absolutely nothing to do with except signing off the bills. Wise hosted elaborate jubilees at headquarters in Kissimmee, Florida. She awarded top sellers with diamonds and pearls, literally. There were also motorboats, vacation homes, trophies, and tiaras. Wise glamorized the Tupperware lifestyle. And that changed Tupperware design. The way that these ideas of the party and glamour and fun and courtship feed into the actual products, I think, is interesting because Tupper's first objects are all white, plain white. And then they start to become pastel and they start to use things like, you know, analogies to Christian Dior's new look. I mean, it's hilarious. But it really works. There's no way Earl Tupper would make any analogy to Christian Dior New Look. He wouldn't know what it was. This made Earl Tupper millions. It also flew in the face of his Protestant New England disposition. But that's not what did Brownie Wise in. It was instead her inappropriate use, in Tupper's eyes, of his best-selling Wonder Bowl. And then, of course, there's that great story of Earl Tupper's reason for firing Brownie Wise is finally that she uses a Wonder Bowl, which is apparently completely true. I mean, I've seen the memos that she uses it as a dog bowl, which is fantastic. And it really is kind of Brownie Wise standing up for herself by using it as a dog bowl. It's great. In the end, Brownie Wise would die in relative obscurity. And so would Tupper. After firing her, Earl Tupper sold Tupperware to the Rexall Drugstore Company. Then he divorced his wife, gave up his U.S. citizenship, and bought an island off the coast of Costa Rica. Earl Tupper died in 1983, at the age of 76. But Tupperware lived on. You know, and people are amazed that we're still around (laughs) after all these years. Carmela April is a Tupperware lady. And she knows what you might be thinking when you hear that. You can always tell a Tupperware lady. She's a lady with a great big smile. I had that 
vision. Oh, a Tupperware lady. And I never imagined me being a stay-at-home mom either. So, yeah, I went, got my associate degree in engineering. I was a single parent. I was the full supporter of my child, my son. And I was independent. And, you know, I mean, I just, I guess I had a vision of what stay-at-home mom and things like that, which is harder than going to work. I learned that. <laughs> April trained as an engineer. She had a full-time job and was supporting her young son on her own. And then the company had a massive layoff, so April started a contract gig. But she needed some extra cash, and she happened to know that you could get free Tupperware if you signed up to be a consultant. You know, I had all intentions of staying in, in my field. I had um, joined Tupperware in 2002 just because I wanted my discount. So that was there to make some extra money while I was waiting to find something full-time. So what a consultant does is recruit people to host a party, a party where that consultant peddles Tupperware. So what you, what I would do is I would party plan you. I have a... a so a consultant uh, calls you up and says, hey, I'll come to your house, you invite your friends and family, and we'll make some food and drink conveniently aided by Tupperware. I would bring my Tupperware to your house or wherever you want to have it. We would talk ahead of time about what recipes you would like to make. At the same time the consultant is selling Tupperware, they're also marketing the marketing process itself, trying to recruit others to join the consulting team. And the host gets, as April puts it, showered with Tupperware. Now, to be clear, this is not a pyramid scheme. This is considered direct selling. It's by no means easy to succeed in this model, but people do. And they've been doing it for over 70 years. They make a lot of money. Um, I mean, it's really unlimited, honestly. I mean, you party, you know. Um, I can tell you what percentage we make, if that's what you want to know. Sure. Okay, we make 25%. We can make up to 35 but then when you have a team, you, you make more money. It wasn't until the recession, April says, that she really hit her stride. She noticed a tone shift in people attending Tupperware parties. People wanted something. They wanted stuff that they didn't throw away. They wanted stuff that last, you had a great name to it and lasts a lifetime. And if it doesn't, we warranty it. So I was getting a lot of business and I was having a lot of people joining my team, you know, wanting to um, do the same thing. So that's when I realized I would stop searching for the full-time job with my engineering, and I started doing this full-time. All consultants follow guidelines for success, and it's the same basic program that Brownie Wise touted. She was fascinating. So uh, we were very lucky that we had her first. You know, we had her in Tupperware. But any in-home party really follows what she, she came up with back in 1948. Of course, in 1948, there were different standards in the U.S., different needs for the average homemaker. A few years ago, Tupperware's CEO acknowledged that the U.S. is, quote, basically a Walmart market, the idea being that we prioritize price over quality. But all it takes, April says, is to hold Tupperware in your hands. So the cost is there. So if you saw it in the, you know, at Walmart or something or one of the other stores, you know, you would say, oh, you know, but when you're touching it and you're using it, then you want it. But there's something else to the Tupperware aura that Brownie Wise fostered so many years ago. 
April describes the Tupperware Jubilee as part training session, part motivational speaking event. get a lot of training and then you hear people's testimonials which you know you learn that you know you think it's hard for you but when you hear this you're like wow I can overcome she could do it I can overcome it too you know mm-hmm. we get tastings they did some food um, you win prizes and you get some Tupperware <laughs> April says she's earned a car and a trip to Disney World and that she's working on a trip to Hawaii. She says that being a Tupperware consultant has changed her. It's given me confidence. You know, I know when I worked at my full-time job and I would have to talk in front of people, you know, um, I was very nervous, shy. (laughs) Now, you know, at a party I could have 20 or 30 people and be fine with it. (laughs) That's what happened, Tupperware. So for everything that Earl Tupper may have rejected, the pink and the jubilees and, yes, even a Tupperware dog bowl, his vision of being a better social friend may have actually found a way to play out, if not exactly as he pictured it. Um, Positive energy. It's a very positive energy company. No matter where you are, you're important to them. And whether he would have liked it or not, Earl Tupper lives on in the hearts of Tupperware ladies and men across the world. But are there any other, you think, misconceptions about Tupperware that you've recognized that you wish people knew about in terms of the reality of it? (laughs) Um, That there really is a Mr. Tupper. (laughs) A lot of people don't know that. They They don't know about Mr. Tupper, which is really funny. He was born here in New Hampshire. It's learning and sharing with people who care in the company of friends. More word of mouth coming up after the break. Okay, one last question. Yep. Is the Tupperware burp still a thing? <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't burp my Tupperware. <laughs> you can still burp it, but I don't burp it. Okay. So you don't yeah. have to. You don't have to burp it. Okay. Welcome back to Word of Mouth. I'm Erica Janik. Our next story comes from Outside In and takes us deep into the woods to investigate a forest product especially dear to our New Hampshire hearts. Here's Sam Evans-Brown. Island Pond, Vermont is a tiny community of a couple hundred people up near the Canadian border. Like a lot of small, rural, northern New England towns, things are rough there economically. Income is around half the average for the rest of the state, And for years, wages have been falling and people were moving away. But then, a few years back, people started to hear about something through the grapevine. Yeah, right, you hear things, right? (laughs) Up in that part of the world, Sweet Tree was kind of a big deal. Sweet Tree, that's the name of the company that got this community buzzing. There are two people talking here, but we've disguised their voices. I couldn't get anyone to tell me this story unless the interview was anonymous. At first, this was confusing because no one was saying anything particularly controversial. I have some theories about this, but we'll come back to them later. They were invited as part of a private tour 
of Sweet Tree's new facility. And so you drive into this, this small Vermont Northeast Kingdom town, and, and then you come upon what was formerly a Ethan Allen Furniture Manufacturing Facility. So it looks like a warehouse. It's like gray, corrugated um, metal siding. So the facility had very shiny, gleaming new stuff, and it just felt very strange. Like we're walking into some creepy lab where you don't know what they're doing. I don't think that the region had seen anything like this kind of investment going into such a such a state-of-the-art, massive facility. So what are they building? This, quote, creepy lab, unquote, was not growing organs or designing weapons for the Department of Defense. Sweet Tree was building a massive maple sugaring operation. Eventually, it would drill holes into as many as a million sugar maples and extract sap from those trees with more than 6,000 miles of tubing, enough to stretch all the way across the country. The owner, who it turns out was actually a Massachusetts-based life insurance company, is planning to sink tens of millions of dollars into the facility. When it's finished, it would be eight times bigger than the previous largest maple sugaring operation in the United States. This was a facility that looked in every way like a maple syrup factory. Yes, industrial in scale, but still understandable. Taps in maple trees, evaporators for boiling the sap, maple syrup. Which is where we get to the weirdest part of this tour. So did anybody at any point ask, are you guys making maple syrup? We asked whether they were making maple syrup and they said no. We're making other products. And that was it. I, they they wouldn't reveal what, what product they were going to go into. Obviously, this is not going to be... I mean, they were very clear that it was not going to be maple syrup sold in bottles. The, the f- pervasive feeling that I got from that whole visit was, what's going on here? And what the heck are they doing with that sap if they're not making maple syrup? Mysteries are brewing in the sugar shack. Changes are coming to New England's sugar bushes. And the very identity of a product that we've been crafting in basically the same way for centuries could be on the verge of a radical shift. But a shift towards what? Allow me to present for debate, from my very New England-centric perch up here in New Hampshire, the following statement. Maple syrup is the quintessential North American agricultural product. Discuss. I'd like to acknowledge here that there's a big chunk of our listeners who are not as intimately aware of where maple syrup comes from as we New Englanders are. So while you formulate your response to my debate prompt as a starting point, I think you need to understand the nostalgic picture of maple syrup that people like me have. This one tree here has three trunks, so there's a bucket on each trunk. The process of making maple syrup is slow. You get musical ones. Holes drilled into trees, slowly, drip by drip, fill buckets. Those buckets, gathered by hand, are poured together and boiled for hours or days until it becomes syrup. This is the romantic picture of maple syrup production that many New Englanders still have. A pure product, straight from a tree, straight out of a mature living forest. So the sap needs cool nights and warm days for it to to 
So if we get a run of those nights that are in the 20s and temperatures that are in the 30s or 40s, then the sap will really flow. But if it freezes up, then it stops. Or if it gets above freezing, it'll also stop. This is the home of Nancy Ritger, who lives in Hart's Location, New Hampshire, a town with a population of a couple dozen people. She and her husband, Mark, hang around 60 buckets on maple trees in and around their property. All right, that one's full. <laughs> with just a couple of differences, this is what maple sugaring has looked like for hundreds, even thousands of years. Drip by drip by drip, log after log on the fire. It is the opposite of efficient. It's about as simple a processed food as you can imagine. Native Americans used to slash maple trees with axes and gather sap in birch baskets. They would plop hot rocks inside to boil off the water, leaving behind the concentrated sugar. Nancy and Mark are only slightly higher tech than this. They drag the sap to the backyard on a sled. They boil it over an open fire in a big stock pot. Because we're boiling down approximately 40 gallons of sap to one gallon of syrup, depending on how diligent we are, it could take a day or two or three days. You know, we don't always start it and finish it all at once. But we'll oftentimes come out here late in the day, build a fire, tend it until somebody's, you know, got dinner made and then go inside, have dinner, come back out, stoke up the fire and let it go until the morning. And for a very long time, all of the nation's syrup was coming from operations like Nancy's. And this is one of the craziest facts that I learned while reporting this story. Peak production of maple for the United States was in 1860, when opposition to cane sugar made by exploiting the labor of enslaved people drove many northerners to seek a native sweetener. We're talking somewhere in the neighborhood of 6.4 million gallons, compared to 4.2 million last year. Since most of New England's forests were gone, probably every accessible maple tree would have had to have been tapped, and the labor involved would have been simply staggering. So if you had to estimate the man hours that you put into this every every season, what we would We probably you say? would stop doing it. <laughs> it's a hobby, remember? <laughs> but for most of the maple syrup on your table, this is not what it looks like anymore. Yeah, it's not quite put together at the moment, but... Um, so those, those need to be connected. Yeah, these need to be connected. This is me touring the University of Vermont's Maple Lab. Abby Vandenberg, head of the lab, is leading me on the tour, and I hope it doesn't weird her out to hear me say this, but I think she's probably the smartest person I've ever interviewed. In front of us are two identical, very large, very shiny stainless steel evaporators. They're identical so that they can be used for maple syrup experiments. So, for example, a... Uh, an aliquot of sap, you know, raw sap that has been concentrated to whatever percentage with reverse osmosis, and then the raw sap that was used to generate that concentrate processed simultaneously. Did you say an aliquot? I did. What is that? A portion. Okay. Sorry. You got, I'm in my science mode. Yeah, I'm going to throw it out there. Um, I like learning words, so this is great. <laughs> right. but. 
These days, the whole process, the buckets, the carrying the sap back, the boiling, looks totally different. For starters, most of the work of concentrating sap into syrup is now done using reverse osmosis. This is a machine that pushes the sap through a membrane with very tiny, tiny holes that only let water through, leaving sap with more concentrated sugar left on the other side. Starting the boil with more concentrated sap saves sugar producers a ton of work and about two-thirds of their fuel costs, and lots of maple makers have switched to using it. Abby and her team study whether that had an impact on the syrup's taste. Uh, we do extensive chemical analyses. We also do sensory evaluations to see can panelists taste an overall difference in the syrup produced with those two technologies. So taste, taste test. Sensory evaluation test. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, sensor experiments, taste, taste evaluations. Seriously, huge brain, smarter than all of those particle physicists. And the answer to that question, by the way, is no, using reverse osmosis did not change the taste of syrup. So um, it's really pretty remarkable. Not only is the boiling of the sap now just the finishing step of making syrup, it's often done burning propane or oil instead of wood. And the iconic maple syrup buckets? Gone. That is probably the other major feature of modern maple production is collecting uh, sap in a network of tubing. Now, most sugar bushes, which is what you call a forest full of maple trees, are spider webs of blue and green plastic. You can, in addition to just collecting it based on gravity-induced flow, you can augment that with adding vacuum to the system. So Vacuum, like sucking the sap up through the roots of the tree. Adding a vacuum pump to the end doesn't suck sap out, but it increases the pressure differential between the inside of the tree and the outside of the tree. Okay, so so not like sucking the sap out of the tree, creating a steep pressure gradient the way your mouth does at the end of a straw when you're sucking. Practically speaking, the ultimate result of this is that um, by using vacuum systems, we've been able to basically double the amount of sap yield that we get from an individual tree. Reverse osmosis, plastic tubing, vacuum pumps, All of these innovations have been around for decades, but their adoption really only started to get serious after the year 2000. Since 2001, maple syrup yield has almost doubled. That product that seemed impossible to make efficiently, we are starting to make it efficiently, by God. We are making more gallons of syrup per tap than ever before. Which leads us to some maple anxiety that you might have caught on to. Next up, climate change may be hitting the maple syrup industry's sweet spot. A new study has found that the trees that make maple syrup will struggle to survive climate change. The best conditions? Cool nights just below freezing and warm days in the upper 40s. So, is maple syrup doomed by climate change? No. (laughs) At least not soon. Eventually, it might get too hot for maples to grow in some places. But for now, Abby says, out of a six-week-long sugaring season, over the last 50 years, we've lost, on average, about three days, or 7%, due to climate change. You know, the yields per tab have actually been increasing that entire time. So at least currently, technology is really just swamping out any of the effects that the industry is experiencing from climate change. 
So, gut check here. How do you feel about this? Buckets in the woods replaced with a network of tubes, wood fires replaced with oil, sap vacuumed up through the trees. Are we still feeling okay about this product? It's more efficient, right? Which ostensibly means it's cheaper, more accessible than it would be otherwise. So maybe we're cool with leaving our nostalgic picture behind. This is called a, this is a screw pump from Atlas Kopka. It's, uh, this is the most advanced, best vacuum pump in the industry right here. Well, let's keep pulling this thread. So what's crazy here, to me, <clears throat> like if you're used to backyard sugaring in the bucket where it's just like drip, 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 this is like already a torrent. Yeah, and, and it's the same drip, drip, drip out of the tree. It's just this system has 8,000 of those drips coming to it, which is why you see so much at once. This is Mike Farrell, a former academic who recently moved into the private industry. He's working for a new company called The Forest Farmers, and they've invested in all the stuff, the best vacuum pumps. How much does something like that cost? This is $25,000. <laughs> Sensors and smartphone apps to monitor his vacuum-sealed tap lines and sap tanks. So I got an alert this morning. Concentrate upstairs is 91% full, so I know, hey, idiot, don't overflow the concentrate tank. (laughs) They've got the giant app-controlled reverse osmosis machine, and of course the pièce de résistance, the huge stainless steel evaporator with more gauges than a submarine that one person can operate and make 600 gallons of syrup an hour. We try to make it as automated and efficient as possible because where I want the labor, where I want my employees out in the woods, that's where you make your money at sugar is in the woods getting more sap out of the trees. The money to pay for all these shiny sap tanks and miles of tubing is coming from two partners, one of whom is a senior advisor at Bain Capital, the firm where Mitt Romney used to work. Mike's operation is only about a quarter of the size of the mystery factory back at the beginning of the episode. But clearly these are not the same kind of sugaring operations that have been supplying us with syrup for the last hundred years, which were often dairy farmers looking for something to do to make money during the mud season. So what attracted Wall Street to northern Vermont's forests? If the Quebec producers hadn't invested in that, I don't think, probably I wouldn't be sitting here talking with you about this. To answer that question, we're headed north of the border. But first, a quick break. Hey, it's Ben again. If you just tuned in, I want to let you know that we are starting a new series here at Word of Mouth about northern New Hampshire and what a cool, unique place it is. This show is driven by questions from you guys, our listeners. So if you have questions about the North Country, send them to wordofmouth at nhpr.org. Okay, back to the show. This is Word of Mouth, and today we're bringing you a story from Outside In. A mystery about maple. Back to Sam. So, Mike Farrell who makes maple syrup for a living, 
didn't even taste the stuff until he was in grad school. I mean, we didn't have the money for real maple syrup. We didn't have dogs growing up either. And so when Andrea had a dog and he was wagging his tail, I asked her, does he always do that with the tail? <laughs> right? So some things you just, you might not know about. The first time he did try it was at a maple orchard owned by his college when he was a student. And I was just blown away. I mean, it was delicious and incredible. The whole process, of, you know, we got to see how the sap's coming out of the trees. And and so I, I, I wanted to try it. So I didn't do nearly enough research on how I should have done it. And I, I did some things that I couldn't believe I, I would do, you know. Cue the hilarious first try at making maple syrup story. My sap collection was I set up a tubing system. I got it. I, I don't know if I should, but <laughs> we put black garbage bags inside a trash can, and that's the where I ran the sap to, and it sat there all week. <laughs> so you should never do that. <laughs> you know, I, I originally tried to boil it on the stove, and stuff is boiling over, and I burned two of my mom's best pots, and she said I couldn't do it anymore. So then I had to do it outside. We had a campfire pit with a with a grate. So all the newspaper that I started, to, to the fire goes up in the air and then lands in my pot of, of sap. <laughs> so anyway, so none of the stuff that we tried to make was any good. But Mike was in love. He wound up applying for a job, running Cornell's research forest, getting it despite being way underqualified, spending too much money for a piece of property right next door to work, and building his own house there. He had it made. My position there was endowed. So I was guaranteed a salary for life, and, uh, and I would walk to work. So really hard thing to give up, right? It does seem like that would be a really hard thing to give up. So why would you? Well, you have to strike when the iron is hot, as they say. Yes, my name is Simon Trepani. I'm the executive director of Quebec Federation of Maple Syrup Producers. Quebec produces most of the world's maple syrup, and maple production swings big time year to year based on the weather. price of maple syrup was very unstable. Uh, when Mother Nature was very generous, suddenly there was a lot of syrup available in the market, and the price was uh, like sky-dropping. It was amazing. From $3 a pound, uh, sometimes it was like uh, under $1 per pound. Imagine losing two-thirds of your salary from one year to the next. Bank loans for new equipment would dry up. People were selling their land or going bankrupt. And this is when the Maple Federation stepped in. So there was that big referendum in 1989 where 84% of the producers in Quebec province, uh, they said, yes, we want to work together uh, to negotiate price, to stabilize the price, and uh, to build uh, afterwards uh, a strategic reserve. They put a cap on how many trees their members can tap and came together to negotiate a single province-wide price on maple syrup. All bulk syrup sold in the province had to go through the system, and any syrup left over would be put into a strategic reserve. You might have heard of this reserve because back in 2012, a couple of black marketeers stole more than 500,000 gallons of it. Well, Canada seems to have a bit of a sticky problem when it comes to maple syrup. Apparently, Lots of it. Millions of dollars worth of maple syrup has been siphoned off from storage in Quebec, with the crime covered up to avoid detection. The crime was actually discovered somewhat accidentally. 
An auditor doing a routine count climbed the mountain of barrels and nearly fell when he gripped onto one that was empty. Sensational, right? But what you don't hear in those news clips is the way that effectively the Maple Federation's policies have been taking money out of your pocket. Now, the Federation describes itself as a union. It is totally a union of enterprises, yes. But it has also been described as a cartel, an organization that coordinates to prop up prices. Because in Quebec, legally, participation in this Federation system is not optional. Any syrup that you can't sell straight to consumers from your farm is subject to their controls and quotas. And Economics 101 says that when you restrict supply, you increase price. By the way, this is a point that the Federation actively disputes. The, the quota system it does not apply on production itself. And this is maybe misunderstood by a lot of people around. Yeah? We are, uh, the quota is on the number of taps you are allowed in your uh, sugar bush in Quebec province. Which then determines your production. No, because uh, depending of Mother Nature, uh, depending of your efficiency as a producer, you can produce, as an example, uh, one pound per tap, up to six pounds per tap. Okay, so they restrict taps. And yes, weather does have a lot to do with production from year to year, but if there were more taps, invariably we'd have more supply and probably lower prices. And when prices are higher, it's the consumers who pay. You might feel fine about this. That higher price supports a whole maple sugar industry that you might harbor warm and nostalgic feels for. But the bottom line is that because Quebec produces most of the world's syrup, they exert a lot of control over the global price. The Federation also spends a ton of money to increase demand, too. They have a whole marketing campaign, much of it aimed at Asia and Europe, that promotes maple syrup the same way that the Got Milk campaign promotes milk. This has helped to push demand up by 6 or 8% a year. But in a certain way, Quebec's cartel is actually shooting itself in the foot with these efforts, too. Because they were uh, restricting their own output through a quota system, yet setting the price at a relatively high level. And so producers everywhere had relatively high stable prices for a while. And we're able to do whatever we want here or in other provinces. If I want to put in 200,000 taps, I can. You can't do that in Quebec. They can't add taps unless they have quota to be able to do it. In the mid-2000s, Quebec was producing 80% of the world's maple syrup. To put that in perspective, at the height of its power, OPEC, the dreaded oil cartel, produced 55% of the world's oil. So once they stabilized those high prices, the Quebec maple producers probably felt pretty untouchable. But Quebec isn't the only place in the world with maple trees. And so when they looked behind them, they realized there were some pesky Americans riding their coattails. And so you can imagine the frustration that they're putting money into a system to help promote and help expand the industry, and the industry's expanding, but they're just losing market share. Since the mid-2000s, Quebec's share of the maple market has dropped to just over 70%. And so, and so when you say they're losing market share, it's like um, everyone here was expanding, but they were saying the same size, so all of the excess demand that they were creating with their marketing was going to you guys, is what, kind of what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, and they were paying for it. Thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah.
if the Quebec producers hadn't invested in that, I don't think, probably I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you about this because I don't think the maple industry would have been growing at, at such a clip and my partners probably wouldn't really have had much interest in it. Uh, Quebec province always been like the locomotive of the industry and, uh, and there's now new wagons uh, behind that locomotive because everybody wants to join the, the, uh, the train, basically. And so this is what was going on in Island Pond, the massive factory at the start of the episode, the one people didn't want to talk to me about. So the facility had very shiny, gleaming new stuff, and it just felt very strange. Like we're walking into some creepy lab where you don't know what they're doing. I think the people who know about Sweet Tree are hesitant to talk about it because they recognize that there's something different here, something that the public might not like about the scale of this operation. And if you're a supporter of the forest industry or if you're rooting for a struggling town like Island Pond, you probably don't want to come off like you're saying something bad about this operation, even though something about it makes you feel a little weird. I called and emailed Sweet Tree a half dozen times since I started reporting the story, but I couldn't get any sort of comment. They've given a handful of interviews since opening, but they've never said where they're selling their syrup. I can't tell you for sure, but I have theories. Have you heard of maple water? It's basically straight sap, sold at yoga studios and health food stores. Mike Farrell says it's one of the markets he's focused on, and it's my guess that Sweet Tree is angling for something like that, too. Not straight syrup, but new products, new markets, maybe new countries even. This is the reason that the investment wing of a Massachusetts life insurance company could be convinced to pour scads of money into tapping a million maple trees. Why someone who works for Bain Capital would decide to invest his money in hiring Mike Farrell to tap hundreds of thousands of trees in Vermont and a similar sister shop in New York State. It's the case of people who understand economics recognizing the opportunity to be a free rider, a sucker fish attached to the side of the massive shark that is the Quebec maple industry. Since Sweet Tree and Mike Farrell both started up, there have been a couple of really good years for maple production. Even with the Quebec quota system, all of this excess supply can't help but push prices down. Mike told me he's not sure he would have spent as much as he has, given the current low prices. In other words, this could have been Alan Greenspan-style irrational exuberance. But regardless, it is supercharging a trend that was already underway. Making maple more capital-intensive. Making it more big business. This isn't your grandfather's maple orchard anymore. It's Bain Capitals. But again, gut check here. Capital coming in means more scale, more efficiency, lower prices, maybe even higher pay for workers. But are you starting to lose some of that nostalgic sheen for the maple industry? Well, how far can we take this? 
Harvesting maple syrup is a form of agriculture. A forest full of maple doesn't necessarily just spring into existence all on its own. Maple producers cut out trees they don't want and try to encourage more maple trees to grow. This is just something called extensive agriculture. Instead of a monoculture, where there's just one thing that's planted as densely as possible to maximize the efficiency of planting and harvesting, sugar maples are part of a forest. Yes, the forest owner cuts out all of the spruce and the hemlock, but there's still a whole understory that gets to grow alongside the maples, and it's relatively diverse. But letting lots of messy nature into your agricultural operation complicates things too. Squirrels chew on the tubing, moose stumble their way through the sugar bush tearing out your taps. This is just the cost of doing business. But does it have to be? This is one of those kind of crazy things that happens from time to time uh, where you make an observation, you're doing work on some one, something completely different and have this sort of aha moment that leads you somewhere else. This is Abby Vandenberg again, University of Vermont maple scientist, giant brain, you remember. Abby made a discovery back in 2014 that kind of made some people freak out. She and a colleague were trying to see how sap was moving through specific parts of maple trees. So they chopped a bunch of maple saplings off at about waist height and strapped a vacuum tube to the top of the stump. When you look at the photos of this, it's almost like a tiny maple stump wearing a swim cap attached to a vacuum tube. Lo and behold, that we were collecting sap in that way. We weren't just collecting moisture, we were collecting sap. They realized, holy smokes, this could be something. You know, from there, we're like, oh, this may be an entirely different way to do this. If you can take a little sapling and get sap, why couldn't you just plant a whole field of little saplings tight together, like six times as many as in a standard forest? It would be a way to expand maple production for, say, you know, a farmer that's like, oh, I've got a couple of acres, am I going to plant grapevines, or am I going to plant maple trees and make maple syrup? Every year, come sugaring time, some of those saplings could get cut, so they'd just be a stump, and a vacuum cap would go over the top of each one. It would look like a huge field of stumps attached to IVs. The trees would re-sprout from the stump, and a few years later, you could do it all again. No longer would you need a mature forest. You could have a maple plantation. Maybe you know, you don't have to invest in 200 acres of forest, mature forest land in Vermont to make a little maple syrup. Maybe you can, you know, instead of having a Christmas tree plantation, have an acre or two of maple and use that as, you know, have that as one of your crops and just kind of a new way to look at it. One last gut check here. This is what industry does, drives relentlessly towards efficiency. Wall Street comes in, provides funding to turn a backwoods, backyard, part-time industry into an efficient, high-capital, highly productive business. So how would you feel if one day, instead of coming from a relatively diverse forest, your syrup came from what critics would call a soulless plantation? Are we going to watch as one of the last bastions of extensive agriculture is converted into yet another field crop? I'm going to say, like, the idea of a field of, like, tightly planted 
four foot tall saplings with like suction caps on the top of them is a little horrifying to me. <laughs> You're not the only one. <laughs> and so uh, one of the biggest challenges is that is just from a marketing perspective because we talked before about, you know, my favorite sugar bush and the feeling you get when you're in that sugar bush. You want to get that feeling standing in that field. Okay, so maybe this is a step that the industry isn't ready to take yet. Abby announced her innovation with a big splash about four years ago, and as of yet, nobody has even tried it. It could be that this is just too far from the nostalgic picture that maple uses to market itself. But it also just might not be possible. Sugar maples are finicky trees. I also was um, skeptical of the economics because I know how difficult it is to be able to grow orchards of maple trees and get them up to that size. So we're probably not on the cusp of seeing matrix-like sugar maple pod farms. And as Abby points out, just because big business is spending tens of millions on mystery maple factories and thousands of miles of tubing doesn't mean you have to. You don't need much to make maple syrup. And, you know, I talk to people all the time that are like, yeah, this is my first year. I'm going to tap five trees in my yard. I'm, you know, making it evaporate out of hotel pans. And, you know, this works at any scale. I guess it shouldn't really surprise us that the one product that seemed would be impossible to make efficiently isn't actually immune to the march of technology. But I like maple syrup a lot, and I'm not about to haul buckets and boil sap all spring, so I guess I'm glad that producers are finding ways to do that less. So, if you buy maple syrup at the store, just don't imagine that that sap has ever languished in a bucket on the side of a tree. And if you've got maples in your backyard and want to make some the old-fashioned way, just don't run the numbers on how long that syrup took to make. That's it for Word of Mouth this week. This week's show was produced by me, Erica Janik, with Ben Henry, Hannah McCarthy, and Sam Evans-Brown. Music in this episode from Blue Dot Sessions and Breakmaster Cylinder. Word of Mouth is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.